Hi there, I'm Emma Kiesling. And I'm Sydney Allen. And this is Uncovering Publishing, the UCL Publishing Podcast. Today we have Dr. Joe Kane, a UCL professor of history and philosophy of biology in the UCL Department of Science and Technology Studies, which goes by STS. Joe Kane is an expert in the history of evolutionary biology with a recent focus on the history of eugenics, uh, and a host of other related, related subjects. He seems tireless and endlessly energetic, publishing with Penguin, Cambridge, University of Chicago Press, the American Philosophical Society, and several pieces through STS occasional papers. He's also a member of the UCL Press Executive Board and past editor for BSHS Monographs and associate editor for the Archives of Natural History and the British Journal for the History of Science. Finally, he's the acting editor for Euston Grove Press and a member of the Independent Book Publishers Association. And these are just his publishing-related activities. He also runs an excellent podcast called We Are STS, which we'll hopefully talk about a little later on. Um, Joe, it wasn't until I did a little bit more research about your activities that I realized just how busy you are. Uh, can I ask generally what you think led to such a varied host of activities? I mean, what kind of coffee do you drink? Where do you find the energy? <laughs> yeah, it's just far far too much coffee these days. I think that's the real <laughs> challenge. Yeah. And also just a, a, the beautiful thing about being a university academic sometimes is, is that you can do the stuff that you want to do. And uh, I live in a world where I want to do a lot of things. And it just happens to be that I have the best job on the whole planet, which is uh, do stuff, do stuff. And, and work around really bright, energetic, creative people. So lucky me. I mean, that's the dream. I think we see a lot of people who are looking to get into publishing. It's the dream job and they want to be doing something they're super interested and passionate about. So it's great to see it. Um, I think we'll just get started with our icebreaker questions. Uh, Sydney, if you want to start us off. Yeah, so let's dive in with your favorite book to give us a gift. Uh, 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 to give us a gift, uh, Rachel Ignatovsky's Women in Science. So that's a book about uh, basically it's it's 50 women in science who are brilliant and fantastic. Ignatovsky is a fantastic illustrator, very distinctive style. And whether you're 10 years old or 80 years old, you can learn a little bit more about these these stories. The best thing about that book for me is you you give it to people and within about two seconds, they hold it close to their chest and they say, I'm never giving this out. I'm never sharing it. It's my book. So that that's a book I'd love to give out for everybody. That's a good choice. And it sounds like, as you said, it would be a good gift for a big range of different people. It's a pretty good go-to. It's a nice idea because right. it takes, it takes boring, like a list of people and it, and it first chooses really interesting people that you maybe want to know about, but also it's just beautiful pictures. So, so the images alone draw people in. So yeah, they go. Definitely. All right. The next one is what is one book that you'd like to see on the screen? Yeah, I, I have thought about this hard since you suggested you might ask this. And I swear to God, I could not come <laughs> up with anything because the books I read are just so boring. They're so academic industry kind of books. They're, I, I don't read a lot of fiction, don't read a lot of trade fiction, don't read a lot of stuff that's running around. I know what my, you know, the kind of books my stepdaughter would want on the screen, and they all relate to Doctor Who uh, right at the moment and new generations of Doctor Who. Uh, but other than that, I, I, I just couldn't answer that question without suggesting something incredibly naff. I did think um, I, I was going to suggest something really profound and academic like Paradise Lost. But then that, that would just sound ridiculous, wouldn't it? Would you do Paradise Lost on the big screen? 
I think it would be difficult to achieve. I'm not going to lie. I, think I was going to be... say, is there maybe one that you'd like a documentary about? Maybe a topic? That's what I was going to say too. Yeah. yeah, like a documentary might be a good segue. There's lots of nonfiction on screen. Well, the current STS-1 book is, uh, it, it's uh, the STS-1 book program. We give uh, one book to all the students to read to kind of bring us together as a community. And we're supposed to talk about that book over the year. And this year, the one book um, is a book by Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher called the Gorgias. And it's a, it's a, a, it's a book that is set up as a debate between a couple characters uh, about a really important question. And, and the first time I read it, I thought, this is a play. I mean, this should be performed. And the Gorgias is a, the debate is basically style or substance, which is more important. Um, when you, when you're in the middle of a political argument, do you want, do you want to win because you win on substance or because you're just a good talker? And my goodness, we live in a world today where that is a big, big question. <laughs> and Plato is so angry when he writes this book because his mentor, Socrates, was put to death because Socrates tried to argue substance. And the people who tried him were all about style. And Socrates, and, and Socrates dies because he, he takes the wrong side. So Plato writes this book that says, if you defend uh, style over substance, you're a scoundrel. And and that of course could be a play or a book or whatever. So okay, let me lean on the STS one book, the Gorgias. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure that, that if is you, a great one. it is a good one. It's a it's a well, it's not a play, but it's a good piece. And I'm sure if you file through popular movies and TV shows in the past decade, you'd find that theme repeated a lot of times in different movies and shows and everything yeah so, so you can modernize even... it and, and the best thing for you guys is the rights would be available so you could just run with it <laughs> exactly straight away open yeah <laughs> all right all right uh so the next one is your favorite media at the moment that's not a book it's got to be podcasting. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you're, you guys make a great example of podcasting. You know, you could, you talk about stuff you want to, you go straight to the listener, you get into their head and you can talk as long as you want and, and, and in as complicated a form as you want. I listen to loads of podcasts and I try to listen across the whole board, but I find myself being a historian. I kind of go back to the history stuff, but I've learned so much about like, uh, I've learned so much about topics that I had no interest in really five seconds before I turn on the podcast. It's like mm -hmm. Vikings and Tudors and, you know, um, the Phoenicians and that kind of stuff. And you just think, man, it's great podcasting for, um, for people on the go, like busy commuters and that kind of stuff. So yeah, podcasting. I totally agree. Do you have any um, podcasts that you especially love listening to recently? Yeah, I'm really into um, um, not just the Tudors, uh, which is uh, Sarah uh, Susanna Libskin's um, podcast, which is so she's a professional academic, but she also um, uh, she straddles the being academic and also being a normal human being kind of kind of presentations of history. And what I love about her podcast is is um, she takes these really deep academic stories and she asked basic human questions like what did it feel like to be that person and you know what's the evidence for this thing and how does that story connect and so Susanna Lipscomb's stuff I think is is really really a, a plus for a podcast I am definitely because I love that. the tutors so I will be listening 
Yeah, well, the great thing about about loving the tutors with Susanna, this sounds like a title, <laughs> loving the tutors with Susanna Lipscomb is that uh, she loves to to tell the stories about not just the ones that everybody talks about, you know, Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII and that kind of stuff. And and she, what she very deliberately wants to do is kind of just keep circling around the stories that we know very well, and and then get wider and wider as in the circles. And I, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. You just think, man, how come we don't know about you know, these 5 million other topics, yet we think we know about that period so much. It takes a lot of skill to be able to present that in a really compelling way too. And to find all that information about the social history of the time, because it feels like it's widely overlooked sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You have to get past the, the, um, the egos and the nonsense and the, you know, the just endless repetition when people want to know the same stuff about the same people all the time. And it's kind of like they they don't even want to hear it. What they want to hear is they want to hear the rhythm of the story, like the six wives of Henry VIII. Everybody wants to like get into the, all right, we're at wife number three, we're at wife number four. And and people like Lipscomb come along and say, no, 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 no. Let's not, <laughs> let's not fall for that trap. Let's ask, like, who are these human beings and what do they do? And like, like how did they see the world? And you just think, yeah, great. Anyway, so yeah, so that's podcasts. And you guys yeah. are doing that with publishing. That's the great thing about it. So yeah, podcasts are the best. All <laughs> right. Our last, our last icebreaker question is what comp would immediately make you bid on a new book? This yeah, can be STM related. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, you know, I generally think um, comps are bullshit. So when people come <laughs> along and say, this is the new one, this is the new, you know, this is the new, you know, whatever. I just think, no, it isn't. It, it, you're just making that up. And um, so, so I really, really hate to hear comps, but I'll, I'll tell you the, um, if somebody came up to me with an offer, I would go for immediately uh, in an unlimited budget way. And that's Zelensky. Zelensky and his wife, if they came up to me or somebody came up to me and said, well, I've got their memoirs. I, I would put so much money down on the table for that. That would be great. I mean, for both of them, I would love to hear their story. Hopefully it'll come in about 15 years and hopefully they'll live long and happy lives and, and have long memoirs. I would just love to hear their stories. I am going to pivot us a little bit to talking more about academic publishing because you obviously work a lot with academic publishing, with journals, monographs histories. So I'm going to ask if you can talk a little bit about publishing pressures as an academic in the UK, because that's where your career has been, and how universities here incentivize publishing, or perhaps use it as a yardstick of efficiency and success. Yeah, sure. I mean, the um, academic publishing basically is, is monographs and journal articles that nobody other than academics will ever read. You know, it's that sort of universe. And the the market is is universities and libraries and the five specialists in the topic. So so it's a, in terms of publishing, it's a very particular. You're going for a particular set of behaviors. The um, the industry is huge and it's largely invisible, and it's invisible because boring. And boring makes a lot of money. So I, I think that's something to to kind of for for you folks to think about. Um, there, there's a lot of pressure on academics to write, to produce content, and and to produce content in all kinds of different venues, whether it's podcasts, 
or monographs or or journal articles or public events or or whatever but um academics are really terrible at understanding how they monetize their content and that's that's what got me interested in teaching and talking about publishing was was thinking about that some when i was head of department for for a while and one of the sets of meetings you have to go to and head of department is whatever the bright new idea is at the university and and when i was head the bright new idea was entrepreneurialism and everybody's an entrepreneur the argument goes and every department needs to do that and i used to have to sit back and come up with a plan so what was our plan for being an entrepreneur and and at one point i, I it it clicked and i just thought Forget this. All academics are entrepreneurs because we all create content in an industry that goes off and makes money. I mean, we we are the content providers for academic publishing, and academic publishing is a big part of the UK economy, you know, in comparison. So I said, well, I turned around and said, I'm going to beat you at your own game. We already are entrepreneurs. I don't need to become an entrepreneur. And, and I think that is an important idea for academics. Because every academic has something they want to say, uh, they want to say it in a particular way, and they want to say it either endlessly, or they want to bounce it in a couple of different directions. And there are businesses that make their business out of hearing what academics want to say, and translating it into marketable product. And I just love that, you know, um, I love that to, I love for us to realize that we're in that process. So, so that's a big part of, of what is sort of how I see myself in that connection is kind of just stand there and point and say, you know, you're, you're the content provider for University of Chicago Press. You do know that, don't you? And most people go, oh, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. And occasionally you'll get an academic who comes up at a, at a meeting and says, oh, I just got an agent, you know, oh, big me. I'm the big cheese in the room now because I've got an agent. And you think, oh man, you have no idea. You have no idea where, like what your relationship is in the bigger industry. Cause you're no disrespect. You're just meat to the agent. You're just a content provider that they're going to move, move along. And my academic friends just think, you know, that they, um, they, they think they're the king of the, of the story, king or the queen of the story. And, and I suspect more like they're the, they're the um, the serfs in the story to be futile about it. It's a popular phenomenon, I think, in publishing in general and also with authors in general, believing that they are the main character. Well, as they are, you know. I think that was a shock for me when I got into publishing was just how low on the totem pole the author was and how little they even receive from their work. It seems like the biggest disconnect, like the author we have a whole class on it, authors to readers. It's, it's crazy to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you take that idea that, you know, as I've said a million billion times that, that, you know, publishing is, is about a value chain. You're always moving things up a value chain and, and, you know, authors are just the big, that's just the first step on a, on a very long staircase. And uh, um, yeah, the, the industry needs authors. Yes. But the industry needs every, everybody else too. And um, why not big up the authors? You know, like why not make them feel? Because frankly, you you want authors to do a lot of work, a lot of work, and mm -hmm. uh, increasingly as the decades go on, a lot more work than they used to do. And and okay, it's that's fine. Plus, at the end of the day, 
what, what's the story? You know, people remember the authors. They don't remember the copy editors, right? And, or they don't remember exactly. the, you know, the illustrators or the book binders or the designers, you know, all the, all those people get left behind in some way. And, and it's up to historians to kind of pull them back out again. But um, I, again, I, I mean, I say that with such, it sounds like it's, it's disdain or sadness about it. And, and I don't really feel that way. Everybody knows what they're they're doing. But the um, I am amazed being an academic forever, being around people who are providing content and they they don't get their like like what is the content they're providing? It it isn't footnotes. It's something else. So. Well, sticking with academia for the moment, uh, Emma mentioned that in their your, in your class, science and publishing, there's a lot of talk about open access. Um, before we dive into that, could you explain what open access is to anyone that may be unfamiliar? Sure, open access is just giving stuff away for free. You know, it's what I mean, the simplest way to say it. And so there there's fancy schmancy ways of of saying it and talking about licensing and and permissions and stuff like that. But open access, it's a it's a trend. Mostly, it, it kind of starts in science and medicine. And the idea is, uh, it begins with, well, who pays for all this research? And and it, you know, if if the public pays for the research through government funding, well, how come it's so hard for people to get the information back? I mean, we paid for it, so why don't we get it back? And open access is um, part of that kind of political agenda that says we paid for it, so we should be able to access the information for free. And, and it comes after a long history of what I suppose we would all call just price gouging by some very profitable publishers who say, well, if a scientist gets a grant from the government and the scientist produces research papers, sends them off to journals, the journals get sold back to libraries at a huge profit. And the only people who can read them are people who subscribe to the library. And the, and the feeling is that's just a ripoff because universities have to pay for the thing that you know they provided to the publisher. Why are we doing that? And then the public still can't walk in the door and use it all. So open access is getting stuff for getting stuff for free, but it's bigger than that. It's getting stuff that we already paid for to get it back for free. And if you go to a place like like a standard open access publisher, um, a, a great innovator is UCL Press. They got set up deliberately as an example. You're like, can we make this work? as a publishing book publishing industry. Can we make it work? Um, uh, they, you, you can go to their website and you can see any of their books. You can read them online for free. And they're not, absolutely, they're not crap. They're done to top industry professional standards. And you can also buy them as printed books if you want to. But at the end of the day, if you want to just read them, do it. And I forget what their download data is at the moment, but they've only been going for a couple of years and their download data is in the many millions of, mm. of, of downloads. And, and maybe downloads aren't the same as reading, but at the same time, open access means if you want to read that book, you just click and you get it. Does that, does that answer what you're asking? Absolutely. And gave me more than I already knew too. So that was extremely helpful. I, I, I seriously doubt that, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's a, it's a big wave. And so, it, I mean, it begins with, um, it, it begins with, with stuff being online, people feel like they should be able to access stuff for free, but yet we all know, like, whether it's a streaming service for films or music service or whatever, that there, we always crash into these paywalls 
where the stuff that we get for free isn't all of it. And, and we just kind of, we need to get our credit cards out at some point. And in publishing, that's, it's definitely the case. But the open access begins with that. Again, it begins with that philosophy of, hey, we paid for this. You know, we paid for the research. So why are we, why are we having to pay twice, pay for the question and pay for the answer? I don't think so. And so um, that's the move. And whether it lasts is, is um, whether it lasts is going to be decided if publishers can figure out how to make a profit by doing it, and and I think I think some are I think some publishers have figured out how to do it and make the same kind of money they were doing before, and other publishers haven't quite figured that out yet. Well, I think it's worth pointing out just how revolutionary the shift from subscription based or pay based academic journals and publishing to open access is because it's completely changing the financial model that the entire thing is based on. So I think it's 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 a really huge thing going on and a huge shift in money and incentives. And I think it's really uh, fascinating. It needs to be followed really closely, especially if publishing is something that you're interested in. Um, I know you mentioned UCL Press and you've also published in a lot of really big uh, more popular presses like University of Chicago and Cambridge and everything like that. I'm also for the class doing an analysis of PLOS, which is a big um, open access publishing space for like science and um, biology and things like that. What role do you think the smaller presses have in relation to those big giants in relation to open access? Oh, I think the small publishers are going to really struggle because the question of how do, how do you make your money? And even, even though you get book sales after giving away things for free, just like in every other industry, if you give stuff away for free, weirdly, people want to buy it after they get it for free. Um, the I think small presses are still going to struggle. So so the um, the industry is creating for itself these transformative agreements, which is just fancy schmancy academic language for basically saying we're going to transform the way the economics are going to work pay me to be a printer of good stuff whether it's yours or not rather than subscribe to the journal at the end and you know to me i i don't see a huge difference between the old style and the new style because you still pay the same amount of money it just kind of you pay at the front end or the back end um but but at the same time uh i i think small presses are going to struggle but then again you know science publishing is absolutely dominated by the big five and they're absolutely dominated by a couple of of concepts and it and it's not um the the publishing that science publishing is it has it has less and less every year to do with printing journals or printing books and it has more and more to do with accumulating data sets of stuff whether it's raw data or published data but it's that uh, conglomeration of material or aggregation of material um that that is what is becoming so important uh in the sciences and and you can only do that if you have 19 million articles or 3000 journals or whatever you only get the scale when you're that big and so what i reckon is going to happen is the small presses are going to do the things they've always done which is find the find the thing that's in the cracks that's important but it is just not what the big shots are doing and and i love it because that's where the innovation happens 
and uh, a, a press like UCL Press, which is really tiny in the grand scheme of things. Uh, it, it, but it's demonstrating you can do high quality stuff at you know professional standards and and get distribution that everybody loves, but at the same time um, make it not. It's, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's profitable. But I think the institution is paying less for it than it or maybe is. just sustainable. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, but if you you know you think well, if they if it, it just I'm going to make up these numbers. So like so like if it if it costs a million pounds to produce five thousand monographs, uh, what would it cost to buy five thousand monographs? If it's one and a half million pounds, well, we're quids in. You know, we that's good for the library. They've saved money. Um, and and so if if they figure out how to do it that way, then they they end up spending less money in total in the long run. And yeah, okay, that's some accountant is going to yeah. find a way to say that's profitable, and I can <laughs> you know I can live with that. Okay, so taking that into account, as well as the shift that we're seeing to open access, if we're going to look at this from a professional standpoint, what kind of jobs are there in academic and science publishing? Do you think it's going to be affected by these changes? Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. I think definitely. Um, the the First of all, I think the entry-level jobs are going to be the same. And I think that's going to be about technical editing, about flow control, you know, managing process and all that kind of stuff. I, I think um, one of the one of the real drudges of being an assistant editor in the in the science publishing universe is have to manage peer review. You know, um, articles come in, they go out to reviewers to be checked and they come back, comments come back and you got to figure out what to do with that. And that is for a, a journal with a lot of turnover that is just a huge pain. And with open access comes open science, which is this idea that all the transactions that go on in making decisions about accepting and rejecting, all of that stuff should be out in the public. And sometimes the reviewing should be done collectively. So what, what transforms there is you're not an you're not an assistant editor who has to decide two reviewers get them to review stuff listen to what they do and then make some decisions what what an assistant editor does in that context in, in the open sign con context is you stick stuff out into the community and then you let the community kind of decide what to do and then after that you you take the material forward and that is that's interestingly transformative because at the end of the day you're you're not a decision maker anymore but at the same time, you facilitate a huge and creative kind of conversation. And I don't even have my own, my own head around how this process is supposed to work in the best world. But at the moment, it, there's a lot of experiments going on about how do we change peer review in an open science context? So that changes, I suppose, in, in science publishing, that changes what commissioning is in, in a really big way. And that that's great i mean it's really weird and i and i get i myself get nervous about that process because i'm not i just don't quite see how it works yet but but imagine if like a mark in a course is not given by the tutor imagine if a mark in a course you know you submit your work and then it goes off into some public conversation and the mark gets decided in the context of that conversation. You, you know, some people would love that. Some people would hate it. Some people would figure out ways to manipulate it. Some people would find, you know, run and hide. And, but 
weird. What a weird way to decide. Uh, but that is the kind of thing going on um, in science publishing today, like journal publishing to see see if that's going to work. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, moving away from the talks of being an author or being, you know, the business of the publisher, um, what do you do in your capacities as an editor? Um, I edit. That's that's just like the, <laughs> just... the most bullshit answer. I'm, I'm sorry about that, but yeah, I edit the um and and editing, of course, is everything, isn't it? It's it's you know when people hear editing, as you guys well know, they think copy editing, but but real editors do zillions of other things. I absolutely love the developmental editing work that I do every single month. So you know, the beginning of the school year, students come in and they need to do dissertations. They don't know what they're going to do. They don't know what it looks like at the end. I do. And and helping people move projects from zero to 100 is, is a part of the job I absolutely love. No year is the same. No project is the same. It's always different. And that is exactly what developmental editors say all the time. Like most normal human beings, I hate technical editing, absolutely hate it. Um, but, you know, I know it needs to be done. Um, uh, other kinds of editing. Um, what else? Acquisitions. We don't do much of that. But I, you're the you know, perfect I, opposite of me and Sydney because Sydney hates developmental editing and I love technical editing. So together excellent. we all make the perfect. Well, that's the, the perfect, perfect team group. then. Yeah, that's yeah. the perfect team. And uh, um, I, I suppose the important thing is to know that these things need to be done. You know, yeah. Um, you know, and and academics are are natural rebels. So so something like branding comes along, and we 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 will spend more time complaining about it than it would take just actually learning how to you know put the logo in the right place and just move on with your life. But uh, we'll we'll give you a fifteen page memo on why we can't possibly do that. But you know that that's very academic. Yeah, that's the academic life for you. Um, but again, I think the the brilliant thing about you know, I said at the very beginning that um, one of the reasons I got interested in publishing in general was this entrepreneurial thing where people say, look, you have to add entrepreneurial life to your career. And no, no. I mean, in, in October, when students come and say, I have to do a dissertation, the entrepreneurial work begins and it ends when they submit their thesis at the end of the year. And and uh, it's it can go in a hundred different directions, but it but it's encouraging people to see opportunity make decisions about which one they want to develop and then kind of go from there. I, I, I think that's fantastic, um, fantastic thing to do. In fact, that's what I would say would be the, the if, if I had any message for anybody in any publishing degree would simply be become the entrepreneur that, that is, you know, like train yourself to do that, like train yourself to be, uh, I, I suppose the, the advice would be prepare to be a freelancer. Um, and then you will survive in the industry. So prepare to be a freelancer because everybody chases the dream job, but um, a lot of people do freelancing. And if you see that as a compromise in your life, then you're going to be miserable. But if you see it as an opportunity, you're gonna you're gonna really drive drive it forward. And there are um, a lot of non institution or, or corporate based people who contribute phenomenally well in the industry and and you've already seen them in your, in your programs you've seen people come through whether it's a freelance writer a freelance copy editor freelance designer an agent most agents are freelance you know and just go on and on and on that that if if somebody comes through a publishing degree and the only um destination they see is 
managing editor at Penguin Random House, then it's kind of a fail because, you know, there's only one of those jobs and it's occupied. And unless you're prepared to kill someone, you're probably not going to get there. And, but at the same time, why live your life being disappointed? Go for the, you know, build the um, publishing world that you want. And so that's like one reason I'm a big fan of, of groups like IPG and IBPA and those independent publisher groups, because mm -hmm. that's the life of a freelancer or the life of an independent sure ain't easy, but there's lots of things that you can do to make it profitable and creative and worthwhile. I've got to say, you and Dan Kieran have got to create a course or a talk on just becoming the entrepreneur in publishing, because it's it's the most exciting topic that Emma and I have talked about, I think, because sometimes we do sit down after a podcast and we're like, you know, we could start our own thing. Just, like, it is, is that is that what everyone's telling us to do? Just go <laughs> off and start your own thing? Well, no, my, my advice is is prepare for it so that <laughs> so that you're ready to do it and also that you see it. it it's kind of like seeing the opportunities in front of you because even if you're part of a big company mm -hmm. the expectation is entrepreneurial so the expectation is that you know if you're commissioning editor what does a commissioning editor do you you look for the opportunities right and you filter out all the duds and and you even the ones that are mediocre you you got to think how, how, do, how do I make this one win? You know, and, and or if you're an associate editor, there, 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 will, there will be projects that drop on your desk that you think, oh, this is a dog. I, this isn't going to go anywhere. But then you've got to do something with it. And that if that's not what a freelancer and entrepreneur does, yeah, I don't know. You know, when I worked in I worked in science publishing many years ago, back kind of before the Internet. And the, the job I had was exactly that job. It was manuscripts dropped on the desk that were a disaster. And then I had to do something with them. And I had three months, you know, three months and a thousand pounds go, you know, and it's like, oh, but that, that was the, the job. And, and if you saw it as a drudge, like I always get the crappy projects, then it was a terrible job. But if you saw it as an opportunity, say, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do something here and see where it goes. And yeah, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but that again is the entrepreneur life. So prepare to be a freelancer and then you're off and running i think that's the idea because you will be whether you're in a in a um, thing if you're in an institution or not i i suppose the last thing i would say on that whole thing is one of the key things about being a freelancer or an entrepreneur is learning how not to lose money uh, or or at least slow down the rate of losing <laughs> money and and that's where where um we don't really talk a lot cuz we always think about income 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 but if you find ways to not lose money that can be really important whether that switch a supplier like if if your guys rent went up too much you'd move to a cheaper place that's changing your supplier you know or there's lots of other ways to kind of approach that but um uh, that, Remaining that also, solvent and often forgotten mm -hmm. component of yeah, of and I publishing. just did my I just did my taxes, and so I was yeah. thinking about you know how to claim an exemption for this, that, and the other thing. But again, that that's a you know that's part of the that's the boring class you guys would probably skip if you had a chance, you know. But but that is just so key to the business side of the business and okay you learn the business side so that you can do the creative side if that's kind of where you want to be and and uh the business is a necessary evil if it's an evil so yeah awesome 
Um, I think we can wrap up our general discussion there. Um, if you have anything to promote, I'd love to ask what is coming up on We Are STS. Uh, what prompted you to start your own podcast? What's going on with that? Oh, well, uh, okay. So everybody listen to We Are STS, uh, which is a podcast from my, <laughs> from my academic department. And we started the uh, we started the podcast because what we wanted to do, endlessly, we had to try to define STS. And like good academics, we came up with five page long definitions of what <laughs> STS was. And, and my, my approach was you don't, you don't define it, just do it. And so we are STS is a demonstration of STS by just doing it. So we we either get students to do projects that they're interested in, or or we just talk to people we think are good STS kind of characters. And um, a, a great example is we've got a um, interview coming up with um, some PhD students who, while they were PhD students, they were um, helping to teach courses, and they thought that the history courses had very few voices of women in in the primary documents and so they said we need to do something about it and what they did was they created a book of uh, voices from women in the history of science and it was great because they they covered geography they covered time they covered politics they covered the whole ranges and uh, sent it off to UCL Press. And after a while, it got approved. And after a while, it's become a book. And now it's going to come out as a book. So we've got a conversation coming up with the editors of that, which were all PhD students working together at one point That's in time. Awesome. Yeah. And now they've gone off to, li to live other parts of their career. And, and we are just so, first of all, we're really like, incredibly proud of them but at the same time they're doing the thing they're they're doing what we want which is um shifting the conversation away from bad places to good places and and also um they're proving that we're not just a bunch of you know fossilized old dead white men who are yakking on about the past we're actually seriously engaged in conversations that we should be a part of so so that that's an a, important a point example. to make an important <laughs> distinction to to yeah. make clear. Well, you two would correct me if I if I said anything. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. But anyway, that but that's you know that okay. So what's next on the podcast? That's an example of what's on the podcast. And Amazing. You know, awesome. Do I do I say subscribe to the show? No, subscribe to this show, and then you can hear more about about the other stuff. So yeah. go find all the UCL affiliated podcasts. <laughs> all right, I think I think that's all we have for today. Yeah, right. that is all. Thank, thank you so much for coming else. on and sharing. Oh, you're yeah, very thank welcome. Thank you. Yeah.